at verse 12. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God and our Father, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for using him. It's an encouragement to us, Lord, knowing the follies and foibles of Peter, to know yet he was an instrument in your hand to bring blessing to your church. We pray that as we read the epistle he wrote under the inspiration of your spirit, that we too, Lord, be helped to serve Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless the reading and the preaching and hearing tonight for Christ's sake. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with, with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Amen. Now, Peter's epistle has a lot to do with suffering. We've seen that for several weeks. This is especially true to the, for the original audience who would have received this epistle. Remember that Peter is writing to the church of the first century. They were caught in a very difficult situation. They were on the one hand, they were caught between Judaism, which had its outward similarities, especially in the eyes of unbelievers, to the early church. Remember, even Paul would begin his ministry in a new community by going to the synagogue of that community first because they already had the scriptures from which he could begin his teaching and preaching of Christ. But often, many of those Jews were in opposition to the gospel because Paul told us that they stumbled over the gospel and over the cross, particularly because it dealt a blow to self-righteousness, a righteousness uh, by way of works and of the law. So they have opposition from Judaism, but they also have opposition from Gentile idolaters. So you could think, for example, when Paul went to Ephesus and many people came to Christ and suddenly the men of Ephesus who made their living 
as silversmiths in particular, were upset that now their industry, their trade has been hurt because Paul is now telling the community that those gods made of human hands of silver and gold are of no value. And so they bring opposition and they get the civil magistrate involved. So the early church often found themselves caught and pressed between both Jews and Gentiles, Jews who stumbled over the cross and those who worshiped false pagan gods. We have to remember that we are reading of believers who had not yet won the Roman Empire. At this time, Christianity is still a very small sect of religious believers. And many times it wasn't even on the Roman uh, Empire's uh, radar. And when it did come on their radar, it was often viewed as a splinter group of Judaism in, in their mind. Um, and so we, we have to realize that Christianity didn't receive official toleration in this Greco-Roman world until 313 AD under the Edict of Nantes, uh, where Constantine uh, was emperor and Constantine had made uh, a decree that, um, excuse me, under the Edict of, of, uh, of Milan during the time of Constantine, that Christianity would, would be tolerated now, it wouldn't become the official religion of the empire until 380 AD under Emperor Theodosius I with the Edict of Thessalonica. So there was toleration uh, beginning at the early part of the 4th century. It wasn't toward the end of the, till the end of the 4th century that there, it would become the established religion of the empire. So we, we have to recognize the time in which we are. And... Um, you know, we in the West, who are beneficiaries of these two edicts even today, um, in, in fact, you know, our own nation was established uh, in, in, with the First Amendment, the right to worship. And uh, it wasn't written, you know, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. It wasn't written uh, in order to exclude religion. That's how it's often portrayed today in our culture, that the that it was intended that the Founding Fathers wanted religion excluded from the public square. That's not the reason for, that it's written that way. It was written not to exclude religion from the national conversation, but it was because the colonies and the states already had established Christian religions in the state. And they didn't want the states to be wrestling with each other to find out which one of them would become supreme in the federal government. And so they just said the federal government is not going to take a position on it. And so you New Englanders, you can have your congregational established religion. And you in Virginia and Georgia, you can have the Anglican Church as your established religion. So you have to understand the context in which these things were written. Well, during Peter's time, they didn't have any of that. Okay, And, and the polytheism of the Greco-Roman world uh, did not uh, include this new religion that was rising uh, throughout the Mediterranean and Asia. And so they, the Christians were often a, a persecuted people. And Peter certainly understood this himself. Peter knew of what he was writing. When you think about just what we read in the book of Acts, and there was more suffering and in the Gospels, you, we know that Peter at least twice was imprisoned 
in, in the book of Acts, we, we see that Peter and John are arrested at the temple and they are imprisoned. And then later in the book of Acts, uh, we see that uh, Peter was arrested again. They execute James, one of Peter's friends. So Peter would have known people that were very close to him, that he spent three years of his life with, who were arrested, and, and some of them executed for the faith. Peter would have known uh, Paul, and he met Paul. We're, Paul tells us that Peter and, and Paul met in Jerusalem. And of course, Paul would go on to be imprisoned. Peter himself was imprisoned later, you remember, when um, after the execution of James, they uh, saw how it pleased many of the Jews, and so they sought to do the same to Peter. An angel of the Lord, of course, allows Peter to escape. But we know, uh, even from the Gospels, that Peter was brought to a place that he didn't want to go. Remember, at, after the resurrection on the beach, Jesus is with Peter and with John. And he says, Peter, you know, now you are young, but the day is going to come when you're an older man, and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And they're going to bind you. And according to church tradition, that Peter was executed as well. And, and you remember, and Peter's response was, well, what about John? <laughs> and, you know, Jesus, of course, says, you know, never mind about John. I'll worry about John. And the rumor started that John was not going to die, you know. And, of course, John says in his own epistle, or his own gospel, excuse me, that um, he says, no, that's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying here, you just know, never mind, you know, and, and so, um, so Peter was even told there'd be even more suffering uh, to come later in, in his life here. So Peter was acquainted with suffering. He knew people that he, he was intimate friends with who were suffering for the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think a couple things by way of application. Number one, we need to appreciate the blessing that we have um, in the West, where we have been beneficiaries, not only of the Edict of Milan under Constantine and the Edict of Thessalonica under Theodosius I, but also the other um, rule of law that is allowed for Christianity to either be tolerated or the established religion of, of the countries that we came from in the West. Now, that is not the case still, though, for other parts of the world. There are other parts of the world that are actually, in some ways, more akin to Peter's day um, than we are to Peter's day in the, in the way that they suffer um, persecution. And you could think of, uh, particularly in the Middle East and also in parts of Asia, North Korea, uh, Christianity, while the North Korean government has their own version of Christianity as an, a kind of the, the official communist church, um, true believers are often persecuted. Uh, those who are meeting in homes secretly, worshiping and praying together, reading the scriptures together, uh, they are arrested and they are put in internment camps. China has had a recent crackdown um, uh, on the church, particularly those that have resisted the uh, Zionization of, of the church. 
Um, the state is beginning to try and leave its uh, stamp on the church, and if they won't conform to you know a, a China communist uh, praising church, then they're going to be persecuted. Many have been in prison. Some Christian uh, communities have lost their building. Some have had their elders arrested along with their minister. I know we've been praying for Wang Yi here at this church uh, because of his very public uh, outspokenness against what the government was doing and his uh, arrest. He's separated from his wife and his son. So please keep Wang Yi and others. Been, there's been a crackdown in Hong Kong uh, of not just Christians, but even people who are just very pro-West in Hong Kong. China has broken its promise. They said there was going to be a two-government policy that Hong Kong would essentially be allowed to continue to govern itself. And China said that once Britain handed over um, Hong Kong to the Chinese, the Chinese would allow this for another um, many years. And China has broken that. And now there is a one-government policy now in, in Hong Kong. This has been to the suffering of the people there that have known um, the liberties of being under, under British rule <coughs> and, and inherited that and had it even after the independence from Britain. Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, um, it's well documented that the troubles that uh, are there, Afghanistan as well, even after the um, deposing of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, things actually got worse for the Christians. Um, than when Saddam Hussein was there. Saddam Hussein liked his wine, women, and palaces. I mean, he did not view Christianity as a threat. And so in the providence of God, he, he was a blessing in some ways to the church because he, he allowed the church to do its thing um, because Hussein was no friend of radical Islam. And then once we deposed him, um, then oh, things got worse, actually, for Christians because more radical Muslims began to take control and began to persecute believers there. Um, so please uh, keep the suffering church in, in your prayers. Um, that would be one of our applications. Thank God for the blessings you have and enjoy, um, the liberties that you presently enjoy. Now, God gives and God can take away uh, if we're not faithful. Or maybe even in the midst of faithfulness, God may for a season want to you know, purify his church and we may undergo greater uh, persecutions in the future. But thank the Lord for the blessings you have inherited. Our lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. Uh, but remember the suffering as well. So Peter says here in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. He's telling this first century church here, this, this is not to be seen as something unexpected. The evil one is not happy with the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. The spirit has been poured out and there has been a reaction by the evil one to what has happened. Satan has essentially been bound. Now, hear me when I say this because that can be misunderstood, but Jesus said that by his ministry, by his death and resurrection and ascension, Satan would be bound that, that binding is not a, a complete binding as to say that Satan can do no harm to God's people. We see in the book of Revelation that he does go after the offspring 
of God. We, we are told that even as he pours out water and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows the water and saves the, the, um, Satan from destroying the Son of God, nevertheless, he goes after the offspring of Christ. And so we know that the binding is not a complete binding, but as one uh, minister has said, it's maybe like putting a, a rabid dog on a chain, and that there, there is a limitation. And that in what way is Satan bound? Well, he's bound from deceiving the nations like he could prior to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Prior to the coming of Christ, the nations were in darkness. Uh, while the true religion was to be found really only in Israel, and maybe a, an occasional Gentile would bump into it and become converted. You know, you have, you know, <laughs> the, the woman on the, who, the, the prostitute who lived on the wall, you know, at Jericho, you got Ruth. Uh, you, you know, you have the occasional Gentile who, you know, may bump into the truth and, and become a true believer. There were God-fearers due to the diaspora of the Jews during that time. But by and large, um, our relatives were completely lost and in darkness, and they were pagans, and they weren't good people. We need to realize uh, how much we've been civilized by the gospel coming into our life and, and into the lives of our ancestors. Uh, we came from bad people. And... Um, but as the gospel then goes out, after the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, the gospel spreads. And Satan, uh, though bound from stopping the spread of the gospel completely, nevertheless seeks to attack the advances that Christ is making. And so Jesus describes it as kind of like binding a strong man and then plundering his house. And so Jesus is going into the house of the evil one and he is taking those who were possessed by the devil and he's setting them free and he's bringing them out from the house of Satan into his own marvelous kingdom but Satan can still attack obviously we have Ephesians 6 to tell us that that the devil still can attack so it, it's a binding that is a limited binding from the deception Satan has no longer got a monopoly on the Gentile nations does that make sense so that Christ now is beginning to make inroads, and he has been doing that for 2,000 years. So Peter says, don't be surprised if suddenly warfare breaks out and you come under a trial, especially where there is no religious toleration for these early Christians. He goes on in verse 13, he says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So I want to move here to the second point, and that, that first point there was not to be surprised by suffering. And then secondly, but keep rejoicing, verse 13, keep rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Now he roots this in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, notice here he says, but to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ. And Paul speaks of this too. We've talked about this, filling up the measure of Christ's sufferings. Not that there was any deficiency in Jesus' sufferings, but he's saying here, you're in union with the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. If they treat the master this way, they're going to treat the pupil this way. We are not above Christ. So if Christ was called to suffer, 
the church will also have to suffer. Now, he says, therefore, in the midst of the suffering, he exhorts us and this early church to keep on rejoicing. Now, you see some examples of this, don't you, in the book of Acts. You remember how Paul was arrested at Philippi? And he and Silas are chained to the wall. Their feet probably were in stocks. They probably had chains to the wall, and their feet were probably, boys and girls, they were probably sitting, forced to sit up, and their feet were out in front of them, and, the, and they would put the stocks over. That is, their, their feet kind of like go in a hole, and they, they shut their feet down so they couldn't move. That was probably the situation that they found themselves in. And at midnight, though, what are they doing? Paul and Silas are singing psalms of praise to God. And, and, the, and it said that the other prisoners were listening. Now, that was a real witness. The other prisoners have no cause for joy. But these two have reason for joy in their suffering. They were praising God that they were counted as worthy to suffer. We see this in the book of Acts after the release of Peter and John. They thank God that they were counted as worthy to suffer for the Lord. In church history, we've seen examples of this. You think of the Covenanters, who even on their way to the scaffold were singing a psalm prior to their hanging. So Peter is, I no doubt here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, kind of repeating the lesson that he and his fellow disciples would have learned at the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that Jesus was teaching them that they were... Um, to bless when they were reviled, that they were to respond as their heavenly Father responds to ungrateful men. And so you hear something of an echo of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught here in the words of Peter here. So he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. He says, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So the command to rejoice is rooted in two different directions. One, in the past of Christ, in the sufferings of Christ. But notice there that Peter says not only root your own rejoicing in the fact that you're in fellowship with the suffering of Christ, but in the future exaltation of Christ, when Christ is revealed, and when Jesus Christ shall be fully revealed at the last day, you have a reason for exaltation. You can bear with a lot when you know that good things are coming, can't you? You can endure the weight, the separation from a loved one, when you know that the day of your reunion is coming. And so Peter is reminding them to look both back to the humiliation of Christ, that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Don't be, don't be caught by surprise. You, you, you are suffering with Christ, filling up the measure of his sufferings. And also look ahead to the future. And I think we do this at the Lord's Supper, don't we? This is something that we, we do at the Lord's Supper. We look back at the cross when we have the bread and the cup in front of us. What are we thinking of? We're thinking of the crucifixion of our Savior. We're also what? We're looking ahead because Jesus said, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until what? I do it anew in the kingdom when we sit down at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Lord's Supper is supposed to cause us to look back and forward to the humiliation of Christ, but to the future glory of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. That's what Peter's doing here too. 
Now, one uh, thing that Peter does warn us of here, that I want to touch on thirdly, is that we seek to avoid sin. Um, that make sure, he says, that none of you, verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, at least that's how the NAS puts it here. <clears throat> that is, he wants the Christians who are going to suffer to make sure that their suffering is coming solely because of the hatred and the wickedness of others, not because of wickedness within themselves. Um, it's one thing to, I think, endure the sufferings when you are innocent and you have a good conscience than when you know that you've contributed to your own suffering. Does that make sense? It's easier to endure with joy suffering when you know you have a good conscience than when you're suffering as a consequence of your having done wrong and evil. And so Peter is enjoining the Christians of his day and by way of consequence us that we what? That we seek to maintain a good conscience. A good conscience will go a long way for your joy in this world. Now, how do you get a good conscience? You get a good conscience first by going to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, confessing your sins, asking God to cleanse you of those sins, asking God to cleanse you of the guilt of those sins, even if it means that you have to endure for a season the, the consequences of those sins. God, now, God may alleviate some of the consequences of your past sins, but sometimes you're, some of those things you're just going to have to live with. But that God would give you a, a clean slate from which then you might be able to walk uh, with circumspection, that is, with a, a, a watchfulness over your life, your conduct, your words, and so that when uh, you do sin, because no man is without sin, we will always sin in this world, we nevertheless, we go back to Christ and confess those sins on the promise that if we confess the sins, God will cleanse us. And so we want to main, we want to get a good conscience by going to Christ. Once we have obtained a good conscience in Jesus Christ, knowing that our record is now spotless because of the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us, we seek to maintain a good conscience by walking carefully. Now notice what he says that we avoid. One is murder. Now, of course, um, that means also hatred. We, we be on guard against animosity, hatred, ill-speaking uh, of others. These are forms of murder. I think I've told you this story. I remember listening to an old Joel Beakey sermon many, a couple decades ago probably. And, and he may have been illustrating from another sermon. But anyway, he, uh, another pastor rather was sitting at a red light and the light turned green and he wasn't paying attention. And the car behind him laid on the horn. And the minister said, he confessed, this was not right, boys and girls, but he, he looked in his rearview mirror and he said, I murdered that man. Uh, hatred, all because, and he was at fault. 
He wasn't paying attention. And the guy was right. Wake up. The light's green. But his response was wrong. And he said, I murdered. Murder, Jesus told us, was go, comes from the heart. It comes from our, the sin within us. What come, Jesus said, don't worry about what goes into your mouth. Worry what's coming out. The murder, the envy, the hatred, the lust. These are the things that defile a man, Jesus said. Don't worry about foods that I've now declared clean uh, as contaminating you. It goes into your body and goes out the body. But worry about what's inside of you. So Peter's warning us against hatred and murder. Uh, murder, murder comes from malice and hatred. Or he says as a thief, we need to be careful that uh, we do not steal, uh, whether actively or passively. We have to remember, you, you can steal a variety of ways. You could steal by taking possession of what doesn't belong to you, but you can also steal by not giving what you owe to others. That is, you, you know, you, you steal from your employer. If you're not giving your employer the, the work that is due, um, then that's a form of stealing. So we have to be on guard. Laziness is a way of stealing from others. Uh, borrowing and not returning. The wicked borroweth and does not return, says the book of Proverbs. We have to be careful. Uh, we need to remember that... Um, you know, people are watching. I, um, I was going through paper piles at home, and uh, to my uh, dismay, I found a bill uh, that I owed. It was due months ago to the man who uh, sprays my lawn and, and puts the nitrogen out there and the herbicides and all that. And I realized I, I hadn't paid this man, and this bill was... was not just, you know, a week or two late. This was really late. So um, the wages of this man, you know, James says the wages of the guy who mows your lawn are crying out against you. And I realized that was true of me. And so I, I wrote, I paid the bill, but I put extra money in there because I had stolen from him. That, that was money that was due a couple months ago, a few months ago. So I paid more than the bill. Uh, because not only did he lose out on the money that he should have gotten months ago, he lost out on whatever that money could have made for him later. So, you know, I, I made restitution. I don't know how much I had to, you know, I just made up a figure. He didn't have a late fee on the invoice, so I just made one up and paid it. But, you know, we, we need to, you know, be scrupulous about what we owe. And, you know, if you've got things in your home that you've borrowed and you haven't returned, you need to go return them now, tomorrow, or tonight. Um, you know, if you you have unpaid bills, uh, you know you need to go pay them. Um, God God takes that seriously. You know, we we are we are to be the most scrupulous about paying back our debts to to others, and uh, we we need to take care of that. Um, there there's many forms of theft. We need to beware of fraud. Um, you know, when we sell um, secondhand cars, t tell them what's wrong with your cars. Tell them all the foibles and problems with it. You know, don't don't try and hide it and cover it up. Um, and just you know, be honest with them. 
Fraud is a form of theft. So he says, don't suffer for being a murderer or a thief uh, or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. That's a good one there. Uh, Paul says, too, he says, look, I want young widows to get married, to have babies, to keep house. Why? Because I don't want them going from house to house being troublesome uh, for the church and causing problems. I want them to be busy um, so that they'll avoid getting into trouble. You know, what, is it, what does it mean? Uh, one of my favorite verses is where Paul says, mind your business. It, it, being a troublesome meddler is where you're not minding your own business. You're getting involved in other people's business that you don't need to be involved in. You're micromanaging others while neglecting your own home. And uh, so don't be a troublesome meddler. Now he says it again, he repeats, if anyone in verse 16 suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. Now we, we do think of, of jail and prison as, as shameful, and it is. But he says, but if you, if you have been keeping a good conscience, you've been a faithful Christian, you haven't been involved in hatred and in murder and in theft and being a troublesome meddler, and you find yourself yet, while trying to maintain good relations with your community, that if that community still uses the force of the civil magistrate to imprison you because of the gospel, because of, out of hatred towards Jesus Christ, he says, don't be ashamed for that. And that's got to be hard, I would think, knowing that you're, you're in prison in a place that ordinarily is a place of shame. He says, don't be ashamed, though, because you're suffering for the sake of, of Christ. I know many of you were here when Zacharias Weldiason shared with us what it was like for him as an Eritrean Christian. Eritrea is in northeast Africa, and he was arrested um, twice because he was a Christian and the government was Islamic and so he, he was arrested for participating in worship and um, it, I don't know where we can find it I'm sure it's somewhere on the internet but listen to that if you get a chance uh, he said in many ways it was a blessing that his, his prison became a church for him he had, he had an opportunity. What are they going to do? You know, he's preaching the gospel now in prison. <laughs> and openly, you know, you've already arrested me. What are you going to do? You know? uh, so anyway, he says, but glorify God in this name. That is, that you're associated with Jesus Christ. They put Jesus to shame, didn't they? And he, we know, was innocent. He was sinless. And yet, look what they did to him. They stripped him. They beat him. They spit upon him. They pressed a crown of thorns on his head. They put nail in his right hand. They put a nail in his left. They put a nail in his feet. They hung him up on a, a Roman cross publicly before men. It wasn't even a, a private execution in a courtyard up against a wall. It was a public humiliation where he, he was for six hours enduring this agonizing death. It wasn't even a quick execution. It was a slow and lingering execution. And Jesus said, that's who you're associated with. 
Now, he says in verse 17, and I'm going to close here. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? This is still under the heading of avoid sin. He says, we ought to live rightly. Judgment is coming. And the Bible says you and I are getting through, but only as people who got through by way of fire. Um, it is with difficulty that, we, that the Christian is saved. It's with, with great difficulty that we make it. And if we barely make it, then think about those who are without Jesus Christ and have no hope in the world. Judgment begins with us. God is often tougher on us than he is with sinners. You say, you know, well, how come my life has gotten hard since I became a Christian? I've been faith serving God. And, and, and you know, the psalmist rescue, wrestles with this, doesn't he? You know, he said, my feet came close to slipping because I look upon the wicked and their life seems to be going so perfectly and everything's great and they're, they're always happy and posting one Facebook picture after another and, and my life is sad and sorrowful and, and I've got all these hardships and, and providential difficulties in my life. And, and the psalmist says, what? I, I came close to slipping except for what? I, I entered the house of the Lord and I saw the end. I saw the day of judgment. Peter's saying the same thing here. He said, I looked and I saw what? The day of judgment. And if judgment began with the house of Israel and we barely get through as those passing through fire, what will become of those whose feet are in slippery places? They will come under the great judgment. Someone has said that this world is all the heaven that the unbeliever will get. And this is all the hell that we will endure. What, nothing but great joy and righteousness awaits us in the world to come. And nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth await those who reject the Lord. What will become of the godless man and the sinner, says Peter, quoting here from the Old Testament. He says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We can trust God in our suffering. God, though it be perplexing to us in this life at times, we don't understand it. Even Job was not allowed to understand it, was he? he God didn't give him an answer, really, did he? He just told him he was God, and Job was not. But, he says, we can still yet, we trust the Lord, even though we don't understand, even though our comprehension is finite, in what God is doing in our lives, we nevertheless can trust him with our suffering. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, <coughs> we thank you that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest to a suffering people because he's been there even more so than we. We thank you, Lord, that we're in union with him. We thank you that our suffering is not in vain. We thank you, Lord, that it is all working to our good and for your glory. Lord, help us always to suffer <coughs> with joy and not suffer as the result of our own sinfulness. Keep us, therefore, Lord, with a tender conscience. Help us to walk circumspectly and to avoid evil at all costs. In Jesus' name, amen.